In- increasingly, yes, they're driven by data and algorithms, but we're far, far from replacing human intuition. Just judging how someone says something. A lot of doctors, especially emergency room doctors, get really good at within 20, 30 seconds just sizing up right. how sick someone is. So what? What size me up? You, you seem very well. Okay. Yes. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. James Hamblin was a doctor. Now he's a journalist for The Atlantic. He's also a very funny guy. He'll talk about how data is changing the doctor-patient relationship, why self-tracking tools can lead to lots of needless tests, and he'll also give me a fake diagnosis about my fake illness. But first, before we talk about how we keep our bodies healthy, a little bit about how we are destroying our livers. It's a number that caught our eye this week, the significant digit. Can I, can I tell you a number? A number? Yeah. So the number is 4.8%. 4.8%. 4.8% of what? 4.8% is the amount of that Budweiser sales dropped over the last few years in America. Alrighty. Um, yeah, that is actually quite surprising that the Bud Light sales or Budweiser sales in general have dropped. I mean... I serve tons of Bud Light, like in every single job that I've had. Even like at a family reunion, we drink Bud Light. That's pretty much all we drink. Is that like bad? <laughs> it's not bad. You know, Budweiser is owned by InBev, which is this huge like international conglomerate that owns tons of breweries. But they are buying up craft breweries in the U.S. And the thought is because their Budweiser sales are going down, craft breweries going up. Do you think customers would care if they ordered like a microbrew if they knew it was owned by a huge, the same corporation that owns Budweiser? Not at all. I feel like when people are drinking, they don't care who's making it. As long as it's getting them that buzz that they want, they don't really care at all. So luckily we have the perfect person on staff to put some context to that view from behind the bar. Blythe Terrell is a copy editor for 538, but you got married in a brewery? I did. I got married last November at Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City. And that's not your only qualification, having gotten married in a brewery. You also have been looking into some of these numbers. And I have to say, a 5% drop in Budweiser sales in the U.S. is actually maybe surprisingly low to me. Yeah, I think it is a little bit surprising. Um, But I do think, as the bartender mentioned, that there is a lot of brand loyalty. Um, I think people who whose families have been drinking Budweiser or who really enjoy drinking Budweiser for the flavor or just because it's easy to walk in and out with a six-pack and it's cheap, which is probably one of the most important things for a lot of people who are buying beer. But, you know, we live in New York City. We go to bars where it feels like there's this craft beer revolution. Is that just because of the particular bubble we're living in or are craft breweries actually exploding? I get the impression they are. There's been an 18% increase uh, for craft brewers last year. And actually, those numbers also show that the overall industry hasn't changed too much. So the industry is roughly the same size, but craft breweries are gaining a share. So it's no surprise, I guess, that that Budweiser or InBev, this huge international conglomerate, which I guess is a Belgian-Brazilian affair, um, they're trying to get into the craft brewery game. They definitely didn't become as as huge as they are by being bad at marketing or understanding their their users, right? Their consumers. So I think it makes a lot of sense for them rather than to try to become build their own craft brews from scratch or anything like that. I mean, they attempted it with Shock Top. I don't know if you've ever had that. I'm not a fan. 
Inbe have also picked up Blue Point, uh, Ten Barrel, and Elysian. And when do you stop calling yourself Kraft if you're owned by this huge corporation? Can Elysium still say we're a craft brewery? You know, actually, that's an interesting question because the Brewers Association um, defines craft breweries as those that produce six million barrels or less in a given year. And they also say that they have to be less than 25% owned or controlled by an alcoholic beverage industry member that isn't a craft brewer, right? But that's the Brewers Association. So I don't know how, whether that's a rule or whether that's, you know, this specific association makes rules for its members, right? This may be one of those uh, organic situations where kind of (laughs) anyone can put that label on and it becomes either a legal definition or a marketing definition. Right, definitely. And there is, so that 6 million, um, the 6 million barrels, for example, the largest craft brewery in the country is Boston Beer Company, which is Sam Adams, right? So I don't think of Sam Adams as a craft brewery in general, but technically by that definition, definition, it definitely is. Okay, we have to go, but what's your favorite beer? Oh, this is a tough question, actually. Um, I have to say, if I'm just going out and getting a six-pack, I... I'll usually go for Modelo Especial. Keep it simple. Nothing fancy. You know, it doesn't have to be super hardcore craft brew, but that's my, that's probably my number one right now. Good for you. Blythe Thrill, thanks a lot. Thanks, Jody. So James Hamblin is here. He was a doctor. Now he's a writer and editor for The Atlantic. He also makes this fantastic video series called If Our Bodies Could Talk. Is that correct? That's correct. That's the name of it. Uh, James, welcome to 538. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So what kind of doctor were you? A good one. I was a radiologist. I did three years of residency, and then I stopped. I mean, I'm still a doctor in some sense. In a legal sense. Uh, in a legal sense, in a training sense. And, and uh, But I, I practice now through the art of media <laughs> and writing. And, and, and Yeah, and, and public health and public policy and nutrition and all kinds of important things that people need to know about. But I talk to a lot of people instead of a single patient at a time. Where were you, doctor? How long for? At, uh, I did my first year of training in in Boston, mm-hmm. in general internal medicine, like the scrubs Is this year. one of those things where people say, I went to school in Boston, and then they're avoiding saying, I went to Harvard? It's one of the Harvard hospitals. Okay. You know, you have a clinical appointment through that. Right. But it's very different from going to Harvard Medical right. School, which I did not. Um yeah, but that was just the general, like, scrubs year, doing mostly paperwork, a lot of physical exams, a lot of the grunt work, a lot of the night shifts. And then uh, I did two years of specializing in radiology, which is just interpreting diagnostic imaging exams, totally removed from talking to patients most of mm-hmm. the time, sitting in a dark room, staring at a screen, generating reports, interpreting MRIs, solving these puzzles. And Amazing that you decided to switch time. fields. <laughs> it was just really not a good fit for me. I mean, at night I was going over, I was, I was at UCLA and I was doing uh, improv and, and stand-up comedy at, at UCB, and, and then it, during the day I was doing radiology, which was just a totally opposite world, and uh, magazine writing kind of marries those two right. things. So we'll talk about how you got into journalism yeah. later, but um, we're, you're here to talk about kind of how data is changing the medical profession and medical journalism. So um, I was thinking that we could do a little like role play doctor's visit to, to sort of play out how data enters the equation. Are you That game? sounds great. Yeah. Right. So do you want to play the doctor or the patient? I mean, I think it makes most sense for me to be the doctor. I don't know. I think we should flip a coin. All right. I've been a patient, too. Yeah, that's true. And I've never been a doctor, so we'll see. Heads is you're the doctor. All right. 
How did you do that? Heads it is. It's heads. And this is radio, so we could just say it. it was heads. Funny enough. But it gonna... really was. All right. So you're going to be the doctor. I'm going to be the patient. All right. Uh, okay. So I walk into your – where are you? it's like a small family practice, let's say. Yeah, that's I've never, I, you know, I did a rotation in family right, practice, just, but I have enough experience. Yeah, oh right, right, right. Imagination. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I walk into your family practice, and uh, what's the first thing I do? You will be handed a clipboard and yeah. a pen and five pages of paper to like, fill out. Like happens every single time I go to the doctor. Yeah. If this is a new, do- I mean, theoretically, if you've been to that doctor before, you don't have to. But if you've been Never been to that doctor before. Even if you fill out those forms a million times for other doctors, you'll you'll start at the top. So this is, I think, one of the ways that people interact with medical data most regularly is that form that you have to fill out every time you go in. Why can't that information be in the cloud? Why do I have to fill out that form every time? So, well – one basic reason is that people don't want to perpetuate errors. Theoretically, if, if an error got into your system and it, you hadn't actually had this thing happen or you'd forgotten to mention it and we just assumed your record was complete and didn't ask you every single time, then we would be liable for not asking you these questions. Mm-hmm. But um, also just more plainly because that doctor's office does not have access to your records in a lot of places. There are some places where the electronic medical records are being merged with hospitals, with practices, as practices merge together, and they're having access to records from other other doctors. Um, but that is still – it's still in isolated chunks. There are these isolated worlds of, of systems, of networks that are not connected. And, and it's because of mainly privacy issues. People don't want this giant Google medical record where you're – your medical record is accessible by any medical professional anywhere, anytime. But if I fill out that form by hand, someone is entering that into a database. It's just that there's that arduous step of me filling it out onto paper and then them entering it into a computer, right? Exactly, but not into a network usually. So it's that sort of cloud that scares people? I think so. It, it scares people because our health insurance is tied to employment. And it's tied to – there. there are – Fears about people learning about pre-existing conditions, about you know, you you talk candidly in those paper in that paperwork in your history about drug use, about sex life, about things that are stigmatized and people don't like talking about, or certainly don't want potential employers judging them on. And so there's there's still reluctance for that to be out there. Because in theory, this information could someone someone who doesn't have access to it could ask for it or it could leak. I think so. It's the same fear, and and it seems really it's getting less and less. People are getting more and more comfortable putting things online. Right. I mean, you see the content of what people are putting on Facebook now as opposed to five years ago. People are all more my medical records. I just things. upload directly to Facebook for yeah, what it's worth. Yeah. Whatever, I, I but think, then I do the like restrict who can see it. Yeah, you know, yeah. only friends of of people I went to high school with, but not their friends. Okay, that's yeah. where you draw the line. Yeah. Well, and, and in the, I think in the most serious sense, you're talking about people who have really expensive chronic medical conditions mm-hmm. that an employer, if they were to learn that they were going to be a big cost to employ. Uh, in terms of health insurance that theoretically could bias against them. Or if it just meant that they were going to – you were going to miss a lot of work or that you might need special accommodations because of your condition. You don't want to believe that people would discriminate on that grounds, but but it's possible. It, 
It happens. Okay, so I fill out the form by hand. If I'm in part of one of these networks, maybe my a lot of my information is already in there. But now I'm sitting there, and I know you run a real tight ship, so it's probably only like five, ten minutes before I get called in. Uh, thank you for that. So I walk in. Uh, What's your what's your bedside manner? Are you like a Patch Adams type? Or well, I open up with some great jokes. Okay, uh, a lot of banter. I mean, that's what every every doctor wants, right? Is to spend a ton of time hearing about your personal life and your family. <laughs> I mean, really, I think that's why doctors get into it. But a lot of people are rushed. You know, the average primary care physician visit I've seen in the worst case studies are like ten to twelve minutes, and people will be. So you kind of got to get right to the point, unfortunately. And in my brief experience as a as a resident, too, it was always too hurried, not enough and of that's, the banter. And where's that pressure coming from to to move quickly? That can come from a lot of different places. It, it, it's from uh, – largely physicians are reimbursed right now in terms of making diagnoses and doing procedures instead of caring for patients in a more holistic sense. So things like preventive medicine visits, just basic check-ins – are not highly reimbursed. So you have a business manager who's saying, no, we need to turn over faster, just get to the point. So anyway, I would love to be chatty with you for a very long time. More likely, you jump right to, how can I help you? Uh, I think that's a great question. So uh, what should I have? Um, Maybe like a rash, maybe? Yeah, a rash is good. (laughs) A stomach, uh, how about about stomach pain? Okay, we can do both, right? So I've had a rash. Is that too complicated? Um, well, not necessarily. Okay, sure. so so doctor, okay, Hamblin, uh, I have uh, some stomach pain. Yeah, and there's a rash that might be related. It might, or, it might or may not. So, what is your first move in terms of someone describes their symptoms? What's the sort of algorithm in your head look like in medical school it's it's hammered home the routine the order in which you do things and it usually starts with a series of questions so you go with the chief complaint the first thing that that brought you in and then go down the road how long has this happened is associated with any given behaviors um and then you'll sort of cone out to ask about things that could seem totally unrelated how are it, you know, have you noticed your heart racing? Go, you go through, it's called a review mm-hmm. of systems. You go through neurologic, skin, um, you know, musculoskeletal, all the different parts of the body. And then sometimes things will but come up. But this is all happening just kind of from your personal experience? Are you going down a, an actual list? Mm, no, you you do it enough that you right. kind of have it in your head. And, and the theory is that you, you might have been noticing some things that you don't think are related, but then the doctor is able to say, oh, actually, those probably are. Right. The fact that you – and one of those re- – a really important part of that is is social history. Just, you know, have you been sleeping well? How are your relationships? Um, sexually active, recreational mm-hmm. drugs. And a lot, of, a lot of times people have these, you know, something like stomach pain that's actually related to starting a new job and being under right. a lot of stress and n- not eating well at all and – so often people come to a doctor wanting uh, an imaging exam and a diagnosis of uh, a tangible biological process. And actually it comes from something much more complex that comes through that review of systems. Right. And we'll talk about the 
the way that patients are sort of taking their own agency more and more. But but with this sort of initial diagnosis, it seems like data is really changing that initial calculus in many ways because people want their doctors to be clinical and sort of very clear and go down the list and just give them very clear information. But they also want their doctors to be very personal and think of them as full human beings, not a series of symptoms. So there's this art versus science tension, I think, at the heart of every interaction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you get more and more used to seeing these patterns in in symptoms and considering the diagnosis sort of in the back of your head while you are validating concerns, being empathetic, a, you know, in a in a real way, realizing this is real. This is a real person. This is not a s- set of s- symptoms and signs and data that you are analyzing in front of them. So uh, Atul Gawande wrote this book called the The Checklist Manifesto, which kind of got this idea into at least my mind and I think into the general conversation about how a lot of times medicine should be practiced more as science than art, and that. Most medical problems can be solved by simply going through a checklist. And when we think of doctors as having to sort of rely on their experience and their instinct and all of these things, a lot of stuff gets gets missed. So is there a way that databases are are moving us more towards the sort of checklist decision tree side of the of medicine? In ways they should be, in ways they are, because we're you know our our body of knowledge about the human body about pathology is constantly growing, and, and theoretically, if someone comes in who is of a certain sex and age and s- certain risk factor background and has a certain set of symptoms, it should be there should be a clear choice of what is the next step based on evidence. Is it worthwhile to do uh, uh, several thousand dollar uh, imaging? scan do you need to see them in what amount of time you know what physical exam test is going to predict what diagnosis at what percentage of accuracy uh we're far from that in terms you know in terms of testing all those routes and there are just so many variables in people that increasingly yes you're driven by data and algorithms but we're far far from replacing human intuition just judging how someone says something, how you can, you, uh, a lot of doctors, especially emergency room doctors, get really good at within 20, 30 seconds just sizing up right. how sick someone is. So what, what, size me up? You, you seem very well. Okay. Yes. Thank you. I, I think you're, because I have been faking. My stomach is fine. I'm going to think you're fine. I'm not going to say that your symptoms rash are, are will... fake, but I am going to not need to put all my other patients right. on hold good. and drop everything. And, and um, there, there's something, so something in that in the intangibles of mm-hmm. of the data collection that we're far from just replacing with an algorithm. Not to mention the the empathy and comforting and and relating. You know, it seems like as a doctor, there's sort of two options in the sort of old school manner, which is one you use your own intuition and your own experience and the experience maybe of the other doctors around you if you're in a in an ER room or whatever, and you into it and decide what is going, you know, what the problem is, or you can like look it up in the medical research, the journals and, and find out, you know, what the possible problem is. But then the third option, which I think is emerging is you can basically search a database and try and quickly find patterns. So you're not trying to fit your diagnosis into a box. You're sort of presenting your diagnosis and a computer or database is somehow 
connecting those dots? So that is the goal for new electronic medical record systems. And um, there's a company called Athena Health that's working hard to integrate evidence-based data into um, medical record management so that I could come back, sit down, uh, check off the boxes of what your symptoms are, what your history is, and it could prompt me, hey, you didn't check B12 levels. Maybe you should do that. And, and not, not, not force you to, not automate right. it, but just say, oh, yeah, I didn't right. think of that. that. That would be really good. Or just say, you know, when someone comes in with this constellation of symptoms and includes this, you definitely need to consider that there could be uh, pulmonary embolism. And that's accessing, in theory, if we have are building this database, it means that you're checking that on the front end, but then on the back end, you're offering a report that then goes into the database and is, you know, anonymized and compiled, so that then the next doctor, there's it's just sort of incrementally increasing the body of knowledge. Yes. So someone could be analyzing all of the tracking the outcomes too. So you right. came to me with a stomach pain and these risk factors, and it's been going on for this long. What did it end up being later? Can we look a year down the road? And did you end up having a a lymphoma that was insidiously affecting your life, and um, should should we have done a test for that? And should it maybe have maybe in the future prompt doctors to to think of that? You know, so you're doing retrospective data analysis in a way that's always been done, but just now we have we can have access to ongoing. Basically, everyone is a potential trial subject. So that that point right there about, you know, kind of the traditional way that you conduct medical studies is, and in in a sense, it's sort of the scientific method, is you come up with a question or hypothesis, you then run tests in a sort of controlled environment, and then you come up with a theory. And then that theory goes out into the world and real life cases get fit into that theory. This is, in a sense, reversing that to some extent because it's really about outcomes and information first, and then that gets connected in a database and a pattern emerges. Right, right. Which is, yeah, it's it's a sort of study that's always been a part of science. It's when you have a prospective study, when you're planning something ahead of time and introducing an intervention and then tracking an outcome, um, you know, that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of um, planning and uh, potentially biases people who are part of the study. Uh, when you do something retrospectively like this, you have the opportunity to there was no one telling you you were part of a study, no, no potential right. bias there. And 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 the data is this just there so i wouldn't say it's particularly changing the scientific method or approaches to this but it's just an it's it's a new way for retrospective analysis um I, you know a, a great example of the data in action and how it can work right now is antibiotic resistance you know there's a lot of there's a problem of overuse of antibiotics there is a tendency of doctors before we know before we get a if you came in with pneumonia and we got a culture of your mm-hmm. sputum that you were coughing up. My what? Sputum. Oh, you sputum. What you're coughing yeah. up. <laughs> uh, so we'd culture that and see what if there's a bacteria growing. And then if so, what antibiotics will work for that? And then we can target and only give you an antibiotic that will kill that. Instead of giving you one of these really powerful broad-spectrum antibiotics that's going to kill all of the bacteria in your body or at least a lot of them, right. do a lot of collateral damage as we increasingly appreciate the value of microbiomes and in, in, in our in our health and, and that won't 
overuse our antibiotics so that they stay powerful when we need them. So we can track yours and see what bacteria caused this. And often there are regional outbreaks of infections and antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and we, and we can see in real time what grew, what worked on yours, what part of the country were you in, where are things working, in what year, it, real time, you know, so what would be the likely cause of your infection? Whereas in the work? past, it really would have just been, did someone do a clinical trial around this particular scenario or not? Yeah, and the C- CDC would come out with data annually or even, sometimes monthly about where these resistant bacteria are cropping up and where we need to actually use our heavy, heavy hitting antibiotics, but now we could see it in real time. Yesterday, there was someone who had a really powerful uh, resistant bacteria growing in their sputum, and you should be careful. But, you know, or no one has had anything, any resistant bacteria in your region yet. Really low likelihood we need to use a powerful antibiotic here. I I guess what it means is that it's sort of shifting the skill sets for doctors. I mean, doctors hate paperwork, I'm sure. You know, if we're talking about needing to build these real-time databases, I assume that's a lot more data entry for doctors and a different skill set, right? It should be more data entry, but also the interfaces should get easier and easier to use right. so that you can be checking boxes. There can be templates. Um, other Theoretically, you can break down the workflow so that other people are able to, to enter data. I did spend a lot of time doing that. Yeah, a lot of time. Doing, but, but it, yeah, having that as opposed to having these handwritten charts that people would have to manually flip through. I mean, ultimately, yes. So maybe you spend a little more time on the data entry. You spend a lot less time on the analysis, on the going back through past records, on procuring records from other doctors. So overall, it should be much more time efficient. All right, let's continue with my visit. So you've done an initial diagnosis. Maybe you've uh, checked a database uh, if you're a forward-thinking uh, in a forward-thinking network. But there's a complication to our visit, which is that I am bringing loads of data already with me because I have a Fitbit. I Googled and I went on WebMD and it basically said you have cancer, which is basically what WebMD says every time you, you, you look up anything. Yeah. But Clearly, patients are coming in with lots more information of their own that they've self-generated. So how's, how's that data changing the equation? I think you have people recognizing things earlier, which can be, which can be good, taking things seriously. In what so sense? If you, some people are able to put things together that might be a constellation of things and saying, hey, oh, maybe I should get checked out and maybe I should see a gastroenterologist about this it, more likely you have people who think that they have something that they don't have um, so then the role of the doctor switches to a reactive thing to comforting to telling someone to relax and explaining there, so there's more transparency it's a more collegial uh, relationship where you're talking about these possibilities because the patient knows the names of the diagnoses and knows what the symptoms are. You know, WebMD is not, not inaccurate, and it's very easy to see yourself in, in a lot of diagnoses. It's, it happens to so many medical students. You start learning about all these conditions, you're like, oh, that could be me, hypothyroidism. That sounds quite like me. So it's not that WebMD isn't inaccurate. It's that when people are going it alone, they tend to 
get carried away? It's very easy. Yeah. yeah. So then the, the then the doctor is not the one raising possibilities of diagnosis, but more kind of yeah batting them down. But it's also good. You know, like I was I was talking about people feeling hurried and patients have access to a lot of doctors will say, okay, go Google this. Here are some good resources to read more. You don't you don't have an hour to mm-hmm. explain all of the history of this disease and all of the, all of the physiology of it, but there are great resources where you can where you can read more and learn a little more for yourself. And what about the health tracking stuff? So you know, I could, in theory, keep track of all of my movement and my heart rate and my stress levels. And I know I heard about someone who was tracking, you know, how much they smile versus frown, and somehow they were inferring all of that information. If you're bringing that to bear to every interaction as a patient. I think for doctors who are more used to the the patriarchal, I'm the doctor, I know best. It, it can it can be a challenge to their authority. It's like to, I don't care how many steps you walk. Yeah, yesterday. don't tell. <laughs> Everyone thinks that they know, but I know. Right. I'm the doctor, and that you know there are other people who are re- really appreciate that people care and that they're involved. And that and, you know if 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 you're calling your doctor every two days, mm-hmm. worried about some new thing, then that's not good for you and not an efficient use of the doctor's time but uh you know you're doing it judiciously and, and being a, aware of your health it's raising health literacy do you overall. do any of that do you do any health tracking or anything i don't i for yeah any particular reason no i don't I, either I'm, I'm just against self-quantification i i don't i don't <laughs> i don't even time myself when you i want to live a full anything. life yeah yeah i want to see the forest for the trees. But but there's there's a sort of extreme end of the spectrum too, which is people can for a couple thousand dollars get their full genomic sequence now. And uh, and I don't know if you saw this but Mark Cuban of all people, uh, the owner of the uh, Dallas Mavericks and you know just one of these sort of internet rich guys, yes. uh, tweeted out a couple weeks ago and said, you know, if you can afford it, you should get blood tests every month and have like a full suite of information on yourself and the medical community sort of flipped out and said no this is too much information you're going to create all sorts of noise and not enough signal that's a nate silver reference which i'm uh, contractually obligated to to mention signal and noise every time i do this podcast but anyway uh you know, you're going to create all this noise by doing all these blood tests and genomic sequencing and so forth and then mark cuban responded and said why would i Trust a doctor when I can get all this information for myself. Yeah, that's the so a great example of that is like the mammography data that has come out recently. People questioning whether screening mammograms are even a good use of patient doctor right. time, which seem like one of the most basic things. We're able to take a quick, cheap X-ray that uses almost no radiation, very you know, kind of in and out annual thing, and. Oh well, it actually may be leading to more biopsies, more unnecessary surgeries. People are—it's not extending life in this, you know, mm-hmm. as an as an end goal. Is this actually saving lives? Um, so there's conflicting data on that. People aren't changing the practice, but but to think that something like that, which is so logical, right? We are able to look f- for breast cancer in an early stage with a, a simple X-ray. How could that not be a good thing? That it's actually not. And the same thing with screening for prostate cancer. You know that. We we have a simple blood test that can track a tumor marker in your blood that should tell us if you have a like it should correlate highly with your mm-hmm. risk of uh, having a prostate cancer and yet 
um, most of the data is saying that that's not good, that we don't actually, because it leads to more unnecessary tests, surgeries that don't necessarily prolong life or, or improve life. So um, people are not using this theoretically wonderful test. So that's the problem with having too many tests. You go down roads, you need more and more expensive imaging tests, diagnostic biopsies, exploratory surgeries in some cases, sorts of things that just aren't end up not being good. I think what we need is is to just refine the data, right? So I was just at, at Google at their life sciences lab, and they have mm. this idea for what is like a Fitbit that you would wear on your wrist that would actually track tumor markers. So before you're having any symptoms, before a tumor is even big enough to show up on a CT scan, you could you would take a pill that would attach to tumor cells that were circulating in your blood. This wristband could track those. It would it'd make them light up, and the, the wristband could detect those. Start blinking. Need to go into your doctor, and you might have a very early stage cancer. The problem is you're gonna have a lot of false positives. Mm-hmm. A lot of people worried. A lot of unnecessary tests. But you know you you need to keep the threshold so that it actually does detect the cancers and not miss them. So you don't want to bring a product like that to market before it's really extremely accurate. Right. And but you know Google has a contact lens that can. Uh, monitor your your blood glucose for diabetics so then you have a 24-hour sugar level monitoring so you can tweak your needs for insulin to an exact moment so their their overall goal is then you have this basically a dashboard of Mm -hmm. data and you could keep constant (laughs) constant it's constantly tracking your sodium potassium and tumor markers and sugar and all the things that you might get checked annually at a doctor's visit. So it's, it is weird to have only one annual blood test as a single point of data that could easily miss something or could easily be spuriously elevated when normally over the course of a year, just fine. And then you go to a doctor, not necessarily when you're having symptoms, but when some of your data is off. So I think the answer is honing those algorithms to make sure that they're not giving a lot of false positives and that they're, but that they're very sensitive to detect the conditions. And I'm assuming those, tools are not cheap right so there's an inequality issue here right i yeah. mean if i mean if access to good health care is like one of the defining sort of inequality issues of the moment uh, actually in that mark cuban tweet i was actually sort of impressed that he went out of his way to say if you can afford it you should get showed a little bit of, of self-awareness i didn't know mark cuban necessarily had but there's got to be a huge inequality implications here when we're talking about self-tracking versus just relying on a national healthcare system. Yeah, huge. So I think we'll go through a big period of, of of real inequalities, of exacerbating disparities, and of people getting a lot of false positives, being very worried by their right. data. Um, before and there's we nothing scarier point. than rich, worried people, right? Which we have a long history have, of yeah. as well. You know, you have these you have these vans going around that are like, come in, get a full body CT scan, and we'll check to see if you have any cancers. And and in one in a million people or something, they were totally asymptomatic and healthy. They find a cancer, and you find a lot of you'll find these tiny one millimeter nodules, and then you don't know what to do mm-hmm. with that. So you have to do a follow up. You're like, well, we got to do another one in three months to make sure that nodule's not growing. Ah, uh, it's not. Let's do another one in six months then. And then before you know it, you've had enough radiation that you have introduced a 3% risk of causing a cancer with that radiation. You've worried the person, even though that tiny nodule had a a probability of less than 1% of being a malignancy to begin with. (laughs) 
Um, we're continuing with our our visit here. Yes, we so are still at my the, office. I know. It's, this, this has been a the, long. This visit. has been a yeah. long visit. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, no, you're no, a hometown doctor. Yeah, you know, you really care about the. Community. I'm working through my lunch break for you. I appreciate that. Uh, so now it's time for your diagnosis or your recommendation. Uh, so when you're talking to a patient, how much kind of stats and data do you? Do you throw at them, and how much do you still try and lean towards that uh, holistic, personal uh, approach? Yeah. This is something that came up during the um, measles vaccine discussion, and as far as why some people are averse to vaccines. I think people have kind of two basic cognitive modes as patients. Some people want to be told, okay, here's what we're – going to do and I'm the doctor and I'm in charge and spend most of your time comforting, most of your time directing, most of your time being authoritative and confident and in control. And some people react really well to that. And if you talk about the data and all the mm-hmm. potential risks and benefits, that only freaks people out because they focus on the risk. Right. And, and oh, any, any risk of this test is, is too much and I, you know I, that's going to freak me out. Um, other people want to know all the data. They want to go through in a very rational decision-making process. They don't want you to seem too dominating, uh, too in control. So you kind of have to know the person and how they think. So is, it depends on the person. Is there training uh, on that in when you go through medical school? Do they tell you how to talk about statistics? Uh, not particularly for me, no. I, and, you know, I think that's something more for uh, when you get a, an ongoing relationship with with a person. You know, You know how to freak someone out. I mean, you know, every time you have that CT scan, you're introducing a very tiny risk of causing a cancer with a CT scan. So you're a, a basic thing like like a, like a CT. So if you bring that up every time, right. now we, we need to get the CT scan to make sure you don't have a blood clot in your lungs that could kill you. There is a tiny risk that we are causing cancer with that. And then it seems like a big decision when really it's not. Really all the risk benefit is toward going ahead and doing that. It's very similar to the challenges we face at 538, just kind of writing about data in general and wanting to always contextualize and add caveats, but then realizing that you still are presenting a case and you're still trying to sort of piece together patterns. And I mean, just the the thing you did just now where you said there's a very small risk as opposed to maybe saying there's a 0.5% risk or 1% risk. I mean, all of those choices about how you couch and phrase the data have a big implication. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you, 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 <laughs> you, 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 yeah, there's a lot of need for communication, which is an interesting thing. Interesting thing. You're, you get into medical school because of your MCAT scores and because of your, right. your grades in organic chemistry, mainly. It's a really competitive process. There's a bottleneck of people trying to get in medical school. Very little in terms of how good you are at communicating and, and comforting and um, being empathetic, which ultimately are the most important things about being a doctor. So you're a journalist now. And so how do you think about presenting medical data and, and, and studies to a general audience and doing what we were just talking about? Oh, it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult because everything goes out there. You know, you used to have sort of a magazine subscribership and you, you knew who your readers were right. and there was not too much of a, of a risk of things going to an audience that was not intended. And now things need to be worded and presented in a way that it, it could end up on 
a real hypochondriac's Facebook wall and you're really worrying someone just by even mentioning. So And they would rewrite the headline or someone would aggregate it and rewrite a study to angle it in one direction. Oh, yeah. And people can quote one sentence out of the 3,000 words that you wrote. And so I don't know. Try to, trying to not be too – Two defense. I, I I always lean towards trying to have fun with it, trying to mm-hmm. be comforting, not fear mongering. I mean, there are a few cases where you it's worthwhile for people to be a little bit scared about something, but just to try to couch it in as much <sighs> context. Down. No, 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 no. It's just the constant. It's the it's the uh, there. But you've seen this happen to pieces you've written where all of a sudden it comes back to you through Facebook as a different different thing? Um, uh, you know, you see people tweeting it and sharing it and seeming like they're really scared. I, I just wrote about – like this case report of somebody who uh, had kidney failure from drinking too much tea. Terrifying. Which, yeah, never drinking right. tea again. So the point of it that I was not saying be scared no, of no, tea. No, no, I stopped listening. It's more just like – so this person was drinking 16 – uh, cups of tea a day, every day, always, just real excess. The whole point of it was just like even something that we know the the majority of studies on tea, it's it's good, it has health benefits, good to drink. Anything should have led with that. Anything in great, I think I did. I think okay. I did. Anything in great excess though has right. its downsides. Well, it's like that. I mean, this happened in the pre-internet era too, right? There was that whole diet coke causing cancer, aspartame thing, and that's yeah. like, well, they were giving these rats like fifteen diet cokes a day. Right, right. You do you do that with almost anything. Right. You can give someone a problem. Give someone a problem, and that's the point I meant to make, right? right? And if you read the piece, but you know, people read the headlines, mm-hmm. they kind of take it for whatever their friend told them it was about without reading it, and it's easy for people to say, "Oh, I'm never drinking tea again." We have a tendency to do this sort of monotonic thinking about health. Things are either good or bad. I, I think a lot of TV doctors try to make it ultra simple. Three three simple ways to do a a, a thing, uh, you know, one trick that you didn't really know about before. Right, right, right. And I, I kind of pair that one back out. One cancer you could get from tea. One, I mean, that, yeah, that's a, it's so easy to play on that. People, it's right. a real visceral fear that, yeah. you're, that you're playing with, with that sort of cell, which is, I don't know. All right, so... I don't know if I've given you enough information to give me a diagnosis, but our, our visit has come to an end. Yes. Uh, and I should have told you this earlier. You have a, a raging appendicitis. You need emergency surgery. Okay. So um, the, the, actually the infection has been spreading throughout your blood the entire time we've been talking. That's a shame. Yes. All right. James Hamlin from The Atlantic, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Make sure you check out James Hamblin's work on the Atlantic website and his really funny and smart video series, If Our Bodies Could Talk. You can see a short video of our conversation on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Mantell. 538's podcast and video intern is Asta Chattervedi. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. If you have any comments about the show or thoughts about who I should talk to next, send an email. You can find my address on our website, 538.com. I'm also on Twitter, at Jody Avergan. What's the Point's music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the excellent Song Exploder podcast. 
If you like What's the Point, subscribe using your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review in iTunes. The more people who rate and review, the higher our ranking. The higher our ranking, the more people who can discover the show. It's an algorithm. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Thank you.